0: This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chowita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Sexual health is part of overall health. Sexual health and expression is a human right. That is, unless you happen to be a person with a disability. While many healthcare professionals want to do the right thing, they balk at actually asking about and discussing sexual health with patients with disabilities. It's a tremendous oversight. The lack of a conversation about sexual health leaves people with disabilities feeling ashamed of their bodies and uncertain about their sexuality. And while the discourse around sexual abuse and lack of consent is well-established, there's correspondingly very little conversation about sex as a pleasurable experience for people with disabilities. today we discuss sexual health for persons with disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Jyotha Gupta. It's really good to be with you today. We're discussing a virtual exhibit which is being put on by the Holland Bloorview Kids Hospital. It's called Illuminating the Hidden Narrative. It's a multidisciplinary exhibit, which looks at how youth with disabilities navigate sexuality across healthcare settings. For more on the exhibit, we reach reached Dr. Amy McPherson. Dr. McPherson is a senior scientist at Holland Bloorview Kids Hospital and helped to coordinate the exhibit. She joins us today from Toronto. Dr. McPherson, welcome to The Pulse. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. What can you tell us about this exhibit, Illuminating? What were you hoping to accomplish with it? Well, we know
1: that sexuality is um, very um, under-discussed in the disability community um, and in between healthcare providers and uh, people with disabilities. So really, we wanted to shine a light on um, what were the perspectives and insights of young people with disabilities about their journey through Uh, healthcare and um, their experiences of discussing sexuality.
0: And how many exhibitors do you have? I know it's a virtual exhibition, but how many people have contributed to their work? So we have um, about eight or nine
1: um, contributors. At the moment, it is online, thanks to COVID. um, But we do plan for an in-person version um, probably in the fall
0: when um, restrictions uh, have been lifted and people can come in and see the amazing work for themselves. Of course. And in the meanwhile, we'd want them to go and visit the website and take a look there. But since we have you now, can you describe some of the the work, some of the, the images, maybe some of the write-ups that have been submitted as part of the exhibition? Yes, absolutely. So um, the idea was to ask young people to take um,
1: photographs but then also to select a, an image or an item that they wanted to include in their, um, uh, their final image. And then we had a wonderful artist who kind of combined these two pieces to make this like, super contemporary, um, thought-provoking pieces that in, include not only the photograph, the um, image or item, um, as well as a description um, from the young person that uh, took, took the photo in the first place. So it's a very unusual combination um, of different kind of um, modalities um, that really help express the real insights of the young people. So we have everything from a button that says trans and sexy um, mm-hmm. to a football with some female looking reading glasses to sort of comment on um, gender expectations we have a, a, a hand on a knee that is obviously sitting in a wheelchair um, that really illuminates kind of relationships and this person's um, you know, kind of um, desire for a relationship. So they're very wide ranging. And we really just gave the young people whatever they wanted to express. We didn't give them too many guidelines other than it just had to say something about sexuality and something about their identity um, with disability and, and how the two kind of intersect.
0: Why do you think this is an important conversation? It's always helpful to shine a light where there is darkness and talk about the issues that don't normally get talked about. There's no disputing that. But aside from the expose value of this, what would you say is the importance of an exhibit like this, not only for people with disabilities, but for all the people that they come in contact with, let's say, you know, healthcare professionals, just to name one category of people? Hmm.
1: Yeah. So our our key intent really is yes, you're thinking about awareness raising, but also to show that sexuality is a human right. Mm-hmm. That the World Health Care Organization, um, you know, calls sexuality a human right, and we also wanted to show that sexuality doesn't need to, to be one thing. Sexuality isn't necessarily, you know, having sex, having sexual intercourse. It could be how you feel about your body. It could be about body diversity. Um, It could be about how you feel about the world around you and your place in it. So we take a a broad approach. And I think sometimes when we talk about sexuality, people go straight to the idea of kind of having sex or that sexual intercourse, where actually sexuality means so many different things um, and also means so many different things to different people as
0: well. Mm -hmm. I believe there was one exhibitor who self identifies as asexual, which people normally, you know, assume means a lack of of sexual attraction. So clearly, there's a range of experience as well. I'm wondering about who you think is the is an ideal uh, person to view this exhibit? Who did you have in mind as the audience for this? So, I mean, I think healthcare professionals, certainly, you know, I, I, my research is sort of embedded in a healthcare
1: context, um, and many healthcare professionals I've spoken to over the years, you know, have talked about how this is a really difficult conversation to have, um, and they felt very sort of self-conscious about it and um, ill-equipped to talk about it. So certainly healthcare providers are, are one of the audiences, but also parents as well, parents of people who have a disability, um, who... I mean, it's hard for any parent to see their child as a sexual being, um, but especially if you have a child with some form of um, disability um, or who needs assistance, sometimes intimate assistance, you know, to go to the bathroom and so on, it can be very hard then to sort of see your child as, you know, um Anything other than asexual. Um, so really, it's also kind of shine a light on for parents who to engage with this idea of how can I support my child to express their sexuality, whatever that is, uh, and that might be just giving them privacy. It might be talking about appropriate inappropriate touch. It could be about friendship you know, it doesn't have to be um, sort of straight to the idea of sex. It's about how do you feel in your body? So I'd love to for some parents and healthcare professionals to really um, integrate that into their thinking um, and, and think about how they might approach the topic with, um, with their young person or with their client.
0: You know i've just done an interview a couple of days probably a week ago or so now with someone called alan martino and he talked a lot about intellectual mm. disabilities and people who were facing a lot of challenges with establishing and maintaining romantic relationships and having these uh you know being able to express their sexuality and a lot of what you just said came up in that conversation uh, parents especially being a little squeamish but why do healthcare professionals feel that they can't have conversations about sexuality with people with disabilities. I mean, one would assume, hopefully uh, correctly, that a healthcare practitioner has some amount of training and distance that allows them to have a conversation with a person, regardless of ability. Well, unfortunately, that assumption is incorrect. Um,
1: They don't actually regularly get training in this area uh, and I should say Dr. Martino is doing amazing work in this area um, around as you, as you rightly said uh, intellectual disabilities um, you know I work with both types but my, my, my research sometimes is more towards physical disabilities but certainly it's important for everyone to be part of this conversation and actually Dr. Martino presented at our connection day recently that um, was attached to this gallery so it's wonderful that you've spoken to him as well he has great insights. But yeah, healthcare providers don't have the training and there's lots of reasons why they might not bring it up. They might not be comfortable bringing it up. Um, sometimes maybe it's the first time they've ever met a client and they don't have like that rapport with them. Alternatively, maybe they've been working with this client and family since the client was very young and so they mm-hmm. have difficulty seeing them as a sexual being when they get older as well. Um, some people feel that they might offend um, either the client or the parent. Um, you know, people worry that they, they might then not come back. Um, and also not just not being sure what to say, um, just not having some of the words of how do I even bring this up? And so one of the things we're working on now is creating some sentence starters that might support healthcare providers to uh, start the conversation and, to, and so we can provide them with some support to have a meaningful, positive conversation.
0: Apart from the barriers that you've outlined, the you know feeling uncomfortable, not having the words, not wanting to offend somebody... Are there other barriers, maybe in the built environment or in the mm. systems, in the within the healthcare systems, things that are just embedded in that are excluding, uh, not conscientiously, but just excluding people with disabilities from having uh, adequate education about and adequate support in dealing with matters of sexual health? So in the kind of the education
1: system, sexual health is often um, delivered through um, sort of uh sports or, you know, kind of um, physical activity kind of things. It's bound up with that health piece. And Mm -hmm. sometimes kids with disabilities aren't actually included in those classes anyway um, Mm. that are more sort of physical activity. Um, And then, unfortunately, we do uh, often hear of cases where young people with disabilities have been told to leave the, the class because sexual education is not relevant to them which is obviously a huge problematic assumption. So it's really kind of from very early on it's that this is really a message that they're, they're um, internalizing, that sexuality isn't relevant for them, they don't need it, there's gonna be no need for it in, in the future. So that is sort of a very problematic assumption from the start. And now if we look into healthcare um, facilities, for example, I mean, we're very lucky in um, our hospital, you know, obviously is very uh, accessible and inclusive. But once people are adults, uh, and they don't have this kind of hospital to come to, you know, we see that kind of examining tables are very difficult for a young person to get into. Doctors' offices rarely have hoists. And so how is that person going to get onto the table to have a pap smear, for example? So you know there are, there are as you rightly say these kind of built environment pieces that also deter people with disabilities or or prevent them from accessing um, the care that they they need. You know even if they want to be proactive and for example have, have screened, be screened for you know sexually transmitted diseases, which is what we would all recommend people to have. You know this is a, a very um, sensible way forward you know they don't necessarily have access to the facilities maybe it's at the top of a big flight of stairs um, so really they're being completely excluded from many things that we or well, people without disabilities certainly take for granted.
0: I'm Jyotha Gupta and my guest today is Dr Avi McPherson from Holland Bloorview Rehab Centre. Amy when we talk about this issue with healthcare professionals feeling a little squeamish or uncomfortable about having conversations with people with disabilities about their sexual health. We now know it's a problem. So let me just ask you, what do you think needs to change? And where do you think is the best place to make that change? Well, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, And probably doesn't have one answer.
1: I think we need to kind of advance this thinking with healthcare providers, but as well as with parents, um, because parents are often, you know, gatekeepers to the information and discussions that young people have. And so, one part of the um, solution is to have parents working with with um, healthcare providers or other healthcare providers, encouraging parents to either have these conversations, um, or if it's appropriate um, for the parent to leave the office or the, you know, the um, a, appointment room at times, and not just so that they can talk about sexuality, but so that young person becomes more confident and has greater agency over what they're talking about with their healthcare provider. And then that without the parent there, that also might be a good opportunity for the healthcare provider to sort of bring up the topic mm-hmm. um, and to show the young person it's okay to talk about this and to ask questions. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. Um, I think healthcare providers also need some support, though, to do that. Generally, they don't feel educated, um, and often there are question marks about um, someone's particular disability that might need more specific information. So, for example, if they have a genetic condition, then they'll need information about if they, you know, want to um, have a child, for example. It might be about um, if someone has a physical weakness, um, then it might be about what positions or how could they um, pre- prepare themselves if, if it's having sex. But mm-hmm. As I said, sexuality is much bigger than that. So there's also that education piece about if I mention the word sexuality, you know, it, it's not going to mean one thing. It's going to be about do you like painting your nails? Do you like feeling you know, good about your body, um, who who might be be attracted to. You know, it is. There's so many different levels that you can talk about, and I think some education about that would be um, really helpful in trying to support healthcare providers to just keep raising the the topic,
0: even if it's just every every session. Like, oh, hey, you know, do you have anything you want to ask me, um, and things like that. You know, my brother is six years younger than I am, and so I remember asking my mom when I was maybe five or six, you know, "Where does the, where did he come from? What's going on?" So <laughs> that's around the yeah. that's around the age when a lot of question, a lot of kids have curiosity and questions about sex and sexuality. And I think parents struggle with trying to find age appropriate responses when it comes to people with disabilities or youth with disabilities. How soon is too soon, or is there a point where it becomes critical that you have a conversation about sex and sexuality so that these young people can make good choices?
1: I would argue that whether a child has or has not have a disability you know these conversations can start from a very very early age Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that because sometimes people feel shocked but um, what I advocate for is about helping children develop those building blocks at an early age that will help them in the future with sexual relationships, if that's what they choose, you know, to do. So early on, it's about friendships. What makes a good friend? How do you feel when a friend does that? How do you think you can be a good friend? You know, you're talking about sort of boundaries, but of course you're not calling them that, (laughs) you know, it's about, well, do you think, you know, if someone's not being very nice to you, what do you think you should do? So, there's a lot of um early work that everybody whether they have a disability or not you know can be part of everyday conversation maybe it's about appropriate and inappropriate touch which is particularly important um you know with um people with intellectual disabilities or maybe So I do think there's a very gradual approach that can be introduced so that by the time they get to perhaps mid-teens or, you know, when people more traditionally are looking to have a sexual relationship or at least be interested in dating, Mm -hmm. then they do have some of the skills they need in order to have a a safe, healthy
0: relationship. One of the things that does come up, if the conversation about sex and disability comes up at all, is a fear around people Mm -hmm. acting without consent, people uh, are warned about sexual abuse, you don't want to be taken advantage of, you have a disability, you're extremely vulnerable. I don't want to minimize the problem, but to what extent is this an issue that could be addressed if parents, healthcare providers took a more proactive role in talking about sex, sexuality and sexual health with patients with disabilities?
1: Yes, um, that's that's a really important question you you ask. Of course, abuse you know is is um, you know awful, and of course we want to prevent it. I mean, we do know generally with more information about uh, sexuality and sort of sexual education that can reduce abuse generally in young people. Mm-hmm. Now, with disabilities, there is a higher rate, and of course that should be warned. You know, warned against. There so should be kind of thinking about that. But what we never hear of is like a narrative of pleasure. Like what else mm-hmm. can sexuality and sex give people? You know, I feel like we just deny people with disabilities um, any discussion or any hope or expectation of a pleasurable, satisfying sex life at some point in their uh, in their life, or you know, to have make connections with people or in deep connections, whether that's sexual or not. But I think even just raising the topic as as an expectation, not just, A, assuming that they're asexual, um, Mm -hmm. and B, saying, well, we better tell them because the alternative is they get abused. I don't feel that that should be the sole rationale for giving information to people with disabilities. Yes, we want to keep them safe, but sexuality, as I said right at the top, is a human right, and I feel like we are denying people their human rights when we don't talk about this topic.
0: Do you think that in addition to sort of talking about the need to open up a conversation, to create spaces where you can talk about sex being pleasurable for people with disabilities, we need to also pay attention to the impact of the silence on people with disabilities? What, What do people end up feeling when they go into a doctor's office or they try to broach the topic of a sexual relationship with a close friend or even a parent and they get shut down? What happens there?
1: So, as a person who does not identify as having a disability, I can't speak for um, people particularly, but I can tell you what we often hear in our research, which is it just becomes very stigmatised. People feel like there's something wrong with them, um, or that they obviously don't deserve you know any kind of relationship. Um, because they've internalized the messages around them. You know, that silence is internalized as this is not an important thing for you. And so the impact on people's mental health is, you know, it's quite considerable. And I think this is very much enhanced in people who perhaps um, identify as asexual or are part of the LGBTQ um, community without necessarily knowing it maybe they do you know but sometimes they they haven't even heard the words they're not even given opportunities to think how they might identify in terms of gender or um, sexual orientation just as some examples so um, I think once a topic is not talked about it really people really internalize that and as I say it doesn't allow them to live
0: fully Uh, Just before we go, in a minute or so that we have left, I believe that uh, what is also in the works is a knowledge hub that has some resources for people with disabilities and healthcare providers so that they can have good conversations about sexual health and disability. What can you tell us about the hub? Yes, so there's an assumption
1: that there are no resources out there about sexuality and disability, and I certainly um, believe that. And actually, over the last few months, as we were putting our Connection Day together, as well as the um, the exhibition, we realized that there are um, resources out there. I mean, some better than others, you know, of course, but there are some out there, but they're really scattered and we had to work really hard to find them. And so we're doing two things. One is that we're going to bring these sources together. We're going to evaluate them, you know, or rate them using some very important criteria to make sure they're high quality resources um, and bringing them all onto sort of one page um, and, 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 you know, showing which resources are good for youth, which, you, you know, resources are good for parents and healthcare providers. Um, but we also have uh, identified some gaps. And so we're working to make what we call products, so knowledge translation products in, uh, in the research world, but basically booklets, um, websites, and things like that that transfers the sort of research evidence into something that's really easy to understand. So one of the things we're making are some sentence starters for healthcare providers. So if you just don't even know how to bring it up, here are like eight suggestions of things you could say try them out which do you like which don't you like can you tweak it to make it more your own so like super practical um, resources to support um, healthcare providers and then in terms of parents who we hear you know a lot from that they don't know what to say we're also doing going to make some like one pages like do's and don'ts around you know do give your child privacy you know things like that it sounds very simple but sometimes the most simple things can can help maybe trigger something in those people to um to then be a bit more confident about raising the topic. So it's a bit of a a two-prong approach, gathering what we already have that's out there as well as um,
0: creating some of our own resources to fill those gaps. Well, you certainly triggered a very interesting conversation here on the program. Amy McPherson, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Amy McPherson is a senior scientist at the Holland Bloorview Kids Hospital. She talked about an exhibit, which is available online, called Illuminating... The Narrative, which looks at how youth with disabilities navigate their sexuality across various healthcare settings. If you missed any of my conversation with Dr. McPherson, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. You can also check out ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Dr. Amy McPherson for being on the program today. And of course, if you have any thoughts about your experiences as a person with a disability, navigating the healthcare system generally, or trying to deal with sexual health particularly, please do write to us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag #pulseami, and we would love to read your tweets out on the program. You can also send us an email at feedback at ami.ca or give us a call at one 509 4545 That's one 509 4545 and don't forget to leave permission for us to play the audio on the program. Nasreen Abdul Majid is our technical producer, Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day.